Amen. Blessing and honor, glory and power, be unto the ancient of days. From every nation, all of creation, bow before the ancient of days. Every tongue in heaven and earth shall declare your glory. Every knee shall bow at your throne and worship you. Blessing and honor, blessing and honor, glory and power, be unto the ancient of days. From every nation, all of creation, bow before the ancient of days. Every tongue, every tongue in heaven and earth shall declare your glory, every knee shall bow at your throne and worship you. Exalted, O God, and your kingdom shall not pass away, O ancient of days. Your kingdom shall reign, your kingdom shall reign over all the earth, bow before the ancient of
God, we come to you this morning, and Father, will you help us to rest in the fact that there is nothing left to do for it to be well with our soul? Father, there is not one thing that is left unaccomplished in Christ Jesus this morning that we not can have not a world of peace, and Father, not every circumstance in our life all lined up and just working well, but Father, to have peace in our soul, Father, there is not one thing that is left to be done. And so we just rest in that. Father, we thank you. And Father, today as we have talked about how you are the Ancient of Days, Father, as we open up your word this morning, how amazing it is that you, Ancient of Days, limited yourself to time while you walked this earth in, in flesh. Father, will you overwhelm us with that story this morning, Father? It's a story that we've heard and, and maybe perhaps have become so familiar with that, Father, it doesn't have the awe and the beauty. Father, will you... Just tell us fresh and anew the story of of Luke and how he portrays the coming of your son. Father, we might leave here in in a short while, Father, knowing that we have heard from you, not because of of a pastor, not because of a worship team, not because we've just been here together in a place called church, but, Father, that you, your very spirit, has come and visited and rested upon us this day. Father, thank you for the assurance of, of the finished work of Christ. We pray now in that power. We pray that now in that truth, Father. And now, Father, we look to your word for direction, for comfort, for challenge, and for commission. Use us, even this morning, Father, from your word as we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Powerful music this morning. Just that reminder uh, of, of what God has already accomplished that there's nothing left to be done for us to be able to have that kind of peace in our very souls this morning. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, 
And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2. It's probably out of all the Christmas stories, it is by far the most familiar. It's the one that, how many of you, uh, is a family tradition, at least at Christmas time, most Christmas times, to read Luke chapter 2. Sometimes it's granddaddy, Paul Paul, somebody reads it. And, and you have that, and it's just that most, you know, out of all the Christmas stories, it's the ones that we're probably the most intimate and the most familiar with. Well, I pray that this morning that that familiarity doesn't keep us from really seeing it freshly, newly in our lives. You know, last week we began to look through the Christmas stories in the different Gospels, and we looked at Matthew's Gospel. And as we were looking at Matthew's Gospel, we, we saw right away that he's writing from a particular vein, uh, an audience in mind, and that audience was the Jewish audience. He wrote from a very Jewish perspective. And so he mentioned things in his account of the birth of Christ that were really pertinent to Jewish people. He made a direct connection in that lineage that we saw in Matthew chapter 1. We, we began to see that he was quick to connect Christ, this one who is born, uh, back to King David so that we could see that there was royalty involved. And he was very quick to trace it all the way back to Abraham so that we can see that this was the fulfillment of the covenant that God had made with uh, Abraham decades and, and, and centuries before. And Matthew begins to tell us about all kinds of things that would have been important to the Jewish people. But he really left off a lot of the things that you and I are probably most familiar with. He doesn't mention shepherds, makes no mention of a manger. He makes no mention of you know, Christ being born out in probably what would have been a cave or in kind of an outbuilding there. He doesn't make any mention of that because to him he was trying to reach an audience that wanted to see the royalty of Christ. Well, Luke is writing for a whole different purpose. Luke is writing, and he's a historian, he's a doctor, and he's gathered uh, a lot of information. He's actually gone around and talked to people that uh, were there and, and you know, that had experienced Christ in his life. And so he gets some firsthand accounts of all these different things, and he puts this together in a historical form. But Luke's audience is not the Jewish people. It's the Greek people. It's Gentiles, probably most specifically the Greek people. And he's writing to tell them about this Christ who has come, and so instead of really kind of focusing on that magi, the, the important people, he talks a lot more about shepherds. He talks about the common people. To whereas Matthew is really saying, okay, I want you to see the royalty of Christ, and rightly so. Luke writes and he says, I, I want you to see the humanity of Christ. His perspective was not even son of God, but son of man. He comes from that, and we begin to see this, that there's no mention of these traveling visitors to where Matthew would paint this picture in purple and gold and, and all the colors of royalty. When Luke begins to put it together, he leaves out purple and gold, and it's all in earth tones. It's just in blacks and darker colors and a little bit of this rusty orange here. He paints this picture of Christ in the earth tones, because he wants this really earthly feeling. He wants to show us the humanity of Christ. Now, I want you to know this morning that one is not more right than the other. It's not that Matthew got it right and Luke got it wrong. It's not that Luke got it right and, and Matthew got it wrong. No, they write from two different perspectives. And I want you to see, as Luke writes this, the humanity that comes out about Christ. He's still sovereign God, clothed himself in human flesh. But listen to the humanity that Luke makes much of. Luke chapter 2 starting with verse 1. And in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the, of the house and the lineage 
of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Luke emphasizing the humanity. He's kind of just like you and I. Uh, not taking away this deity, that he was fully God and fully man, not taking away that he was royalty, but, but Luke's perspective, he really wants us to see that this was human. I, I mean, how did he share it, our humanity? Well, number one, here it is, the Ancient of Days, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and yet he subjects himself under the authority uh, of the, the ruler of the time. They went to go pay, pay taxes just like everybody else. Jesus' family did not have an exemption because they just happened to be giving birth to the Messiah. They didn't get a, you know, a, a tax-free card because they played this important part, the most important part in history. Luke is emphasizing that these people are now under the rule and reign of, of the common one that says, go to this area and register and pay your taxes. Uh, another thing that we begin to see there is that they uh, have to even improvise for this place of birth. There's no room in the end, and, and so they go out and And they basically, what we would most believe is that there was probably a a cave, an outbuilding there that was close by uh, where they had the animals and that Mary gives birth and they placed Jesus in a manger. Now Luke, I don't believe, is doing this and and sort of to to get our emotions going. Going, oh, that's cute. Man, that is really kind of overwhelming that Christ would come and, and have this. I think his whole point is to show us that this is, yes, a royal king, but he's fully human. And that when Christ came, while he is fully God, he was fully man. Folks, that is not just an interesting, you know, part of our faith. It's the very foundation of our faith. If Christ is not fully God, then we have no salvation. If he's not fully man, we have no salvation. This is an essential part. This is what we would call in doctrine one of the closed-hand things that we do not vary on. It's one of those things we do not let go, that he is fully God and that he is fully man. And so we see this perspective, but it's in the midst of this picture of humanity that we see a part of God that most of the time that I don't think that we really kind of relate to God, and that is his humility. When you were thinking about the attributes of God, if we were just to go around the room this morning and say, okay, name me some of the attributes of God, how long would we have to go before you got to the attribute of humility? I mean, we would think about all-powerful, all-knowing, you know, everlasting God, forever and ever. We would have all these different things that, that God knows all things, that God is everywhere. We would have all these different long theological words to describe who God is. But I wonder how long we would have to discuss this morning and kind of go through our minds and these characteristics of the attributes of God before we come across, oh yeah, you know, God, he, he's humble. Is that an association that you make in your mind? And yet I really believe that that's what Luke is, is kind of striving. He's, he's showing us this humility of God. Now, don't think that it's humility just because he's born in a manger. Don't think there's humility simply because They don't have room for him in the inn, and he has to use this extra storage place outside. I mean, that's humbling in itself. It's showing that God did not demand upon man, you know, all the things that he easily could have demanded. The humble part isn't so much of a manger scene and a stable or a cave for a delivery room. The humility is that 
God would clothe himself in flesh. That's the humble part. I mean, has that ever really sunk into your mind in the fullness? I don't know that it will. You know, the term that we have theologically is the incarnation, Latin for in the flesh. And literally it means that God took on flesh and he dwelt among us. Not just to live for us and live among us, but to die for us. Think about it. I mean, Ricky, you picked out some great songs this morning. The Ancient of Days. Here is the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One. And yet, for that point in time, he limits himself to a time frame. 24 hours a week, seven days in a week. Or 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. I mean, the Ancient of Days puts himself in a place of limitation of, uh, of that. The Uncreated One. Christ is uncreated. He didn't begin this day. He's been forever. The Bible makes it very clear. We're told in in Genesis and we're told throughout the Bible that nothing is made that Christ did not make. He's the uncreated one. And yet he joins us in creation. That's really kind of amazing when you start thinking through. The the limitless one limits himself to, to a body just like yours and mine. I mean, I don't know how many of us, if we had powers and abilities and the things of God, that we would all of a sudden electively want to limit ourselves in a way that was, you know, when we're used to hearing the angels just praise us all day long. A lot of people ask that maybe are new to Christianity, maybe new to the Bible and, and all that, and say, you know, what was Jesus doing before, once they find out that Jesus did not start to exist there in Bethlehem, that actually he's eternal, I said, well, what was he doing? I said, well, you know, the, the Bible says that he's creating. And uh, the Bible also says that, that he's there. Uh, and it, heaven is just applauding him and, and singing of, of who he is. And so he leaves this glory of heaven where he really is the center of attention, and where he very much is the center of this worship. The angels singing, holy, 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 all day long. And he, he limits himself and he comes. Folks, this is so much more. This humility is so much more than just simply coming and being placed in a manger, a food tray for for an animal. Much more than just not having a a decent room for Mary to give birth in. This humility goes so much farther. And it's this thought in mind that that made David cry out out in in Psalm 8.1. He said, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. When David thought of God, he just said, you know, I want to join with the angels. I, I just want to cry out how majestic you are. When David pondered the creative majesty of God, it made him wonder why God could care about him. I don't know if it's maturity in Christ. I don't know if it's just the fact I'm getting older. I don't know if it's the fact that I'm getting more sentimental as I get older. But one of the verses that has struck my heart in the last three or four or five years and is right up there with Romans 5, 8 as my life verse is found in Psalms 8, 3, and 4. Look what it says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you would care for him? Have you ever pondered that? I mean, one of those nights that maybe you are just looking at the heavenlies and you can see all the stars out there and you find out that, you know, really how insignificant we are, that here we are, we're this, if we had to draw out the universes and, you know, that we are, we're not even the speck 
in this one universe, and there's many universes out there. Have you ever looked at some of the things that uh, they've brought back from NASA and some from the scientific studies that have been done, and you find out that, that Earth, as much as we are centered right here on Earth, uh, we're a pretty small part of this whole creation. And to think that even on Earth, that you and I, we take up a very small place on Earth. That's not to say that we're insignificant. It just shows the significance that God shows. Who are we? Who are we that God would be mindful of? That's a humbling thought. It's humbling to us, but, but it's that humbling nature of God that he would care for us. In the, you know, the Psalms, it says that not only does he care for you, but he's mindful of you, and he cares for you every day. And yet it's this holy God who humbles himself to an earthly body and brings the news of birth to, to an assembly of shepherds. Uh, not the magi, not important people, not scholarly people. He, he comes to shepherds. Look what it says in verse 8 and 9. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. If you've heard this story before, you've probably heard countless sermons on this. The, the shepherds were, were near the bottom of the social uh, ladder. You know, they, they may not have been the, the very last rung, but they were pretty close there. Anybody of importance really considered the shepherds outsiders. To the educated people, they were the uneducated. To the people that were connected in town, they were the unconnected because they were always out in the fields. To the religious people, they were the unspiritual or the, 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 the dirty. You might say, why? Because they were just awful people? No, the very nature of their job, the task that they were assigned to do to deal with the animals made them somewhat ceremonially unclean. And then they had to deal with dead animals. From time to time, so they just had to deal with the animals who had passed and then they had to touch it. Somebody had to dispose of that. And that made them ceremonially unclean. And so the priest and all those religious people that had all the different rules of what is, you know, clean and what is unclean, shepherds were far outside of that. Maybe you've even heard before that shepherds were not allowed to give testimony in court. You know, so, so much a, a part of outside of the circle of influence that when it came time, even if they were witness of something that happened, they were not considered to, to be able to be valid to give testimony in court. And yet it is this group of people that God, in this humility, in this love, in this pursuit of you and I that we talked about last week, this pursuing God, he comes and he makes proclamation, not to the most rich and the famous, not in some palace, but out in the field. And he tells those shepherds the greatest news that has ever been given to man. Look what it says in verse 10 through 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you see the humility in all this? Again, it's, it's easy. If, if we had a little stable up here and, and we were out in, in kind of this cave area, we would say, man, I don't know. That. Wow, that's amazing that God would allow his son to be born in that situation. But folks, don't get lost in the emotion of that. If you want to get lost in something, if you want to be overwhelmed and awed by something this morning, be overwhelmed and awed that holy God is mindful of you. That holy God loves you so much that he pursued you with his son. That, would, that holy God would clothe himself, limit himself in, in this way to come and dwell among us. 
takes on an earthly body. He brings good news to uh, these, this assembly of shepherds. And uh, look what happens. Again, verse 8 and 9. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. I wonder if any true encounter with God should prompt great fear. Do you think sometimes maybe we've sanitized God? Something you know, that we forgot the holiness of God and, and that we've sanitized, we've, we've made God such a loving God, such a, 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 a knowable God that sometimes we, we, we just leave off the, that holiness and, and hear the angels sing and then they make this announcement and, and those shepherds, they've never seen anything like that and they're filled with great fear. I, I wonder, should that not be the norm when we encounter a holy God? I mean, in our worship? When we're singing of, 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 of God and, and how he loves us and how he's come to us, should, should not a sense of joy and a sense of peace and that it is well with our soul, but shouldn't there be a sense of holy fear that comes over us? Because we are encountering a holy God. Well, that's the setting that we see here. Well, we see that, that with all of this, that God is showing the, the humility that he was coming to us. Do you remember a show? I don't even know if it's on the air anymore, but it was called Undercover Boss. Remember that? And it was kind of, you know, the whole premise of the show is that the CEO of some national chain would go and, and he would kind of uh, take on a, a, another appearance and, and go out to one of the stores and just kind of see how things were at, down on, on the bottom level. You know, how, how were things working on, on ground level, on ground zero? And I guess it had some merit because, you know, here the CEO, this very, you know, person maybe removed from all the daily events of that company would go down and see what it's like down there in the mailroom and, and other places. I want you to know that when we read this story, when we see this story of Christ, folks, this is not undercover boss. This is not CEO coming down to our level. Please understand that this is not somebody who was like us who came down to be like us. This is somebody who was not like us who came to be like us. Does that make sense? I mean, the CEO, even if he's running a company, a Fortune 500 company, he's still a man or a woman. He still was born just like everybody else. This is not the case here. This is not just God showing up because we're kind of on that same level. He's just kind of on a higher level. No, folks, we're not even the same territory. We're not even the same being. He is holy God. And we are, he's creator and we are his creation. And yet he stoops down. He comes like us. Let me point out one more sign of God's humility that we see in this story. And, and I, I want to end with two applications this morning because every time we go to God's Word and we have this, a text before us, it, it tells us something about God, but it also tells us something about man. And so real application from the Christmas story isn't just for us to get kind of a sentimental kind of, okay, now I'm ready for Christmas because I've heard of this great story. But it really should drive us in our lives to know more and hunger and thirst more for God, but also to, to have an outcome of our life, a direction that we live in, a purpose by which we go out. And so as we look at this humility of, of God, I want to show you one more part of this text that I think is really kind of central, and yet I think it'd be easy to pass by because it just doesn't stand up there with being laid in a manger 
and being surrounded, you know, that you didn't have a room uh, in the inn to, to be born in. Go down to verse 21 and 22. It's one of those passages that for some people in here, you really like this kind of stuff because it's history. It's kind of to shows you the, the pattern of the days. Other people, you would skip by this just like we uh, said last week. Many people would skip over uh, that, that whole family tree and they wait for the action to start. But look what happens in verse 21 and 22. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present to him to the Lord, to present him to the Lord. And you might read that and you might say, well, I, mean, I don't see the word humble at all. I don't see, you know, where's the humility of God in that passage? Do you see it? I mean, look at that passage. Examine that just for a second. I mean, it seems like pretty technical stuff. It was, you know, the, the, what, what every Hebrew, every Jew would do. And they would do that, why? Because they were instructed by what? What do we call the instructions where God instructed people to do? We call that the commands of the law. Does it dawn on you that, that he who set the law now has put himself under the law? This is amazing stuff right here, guys. In case you didn't know, and I didn't have to go to seminary to find this out, there's not a, a, a book on how to be God. There's not a standard, there's not rules that God has to, to, to live by in order to be God. I'm truly not trying to be silly here. I, I want us to think, God is God because He's God. And whatever God does is right and holy because he's God. There's not ten things that every God must do to be God, and that if for some reason God forgot to do one of those or just refused to do one of those one time, that he would no longer be God. That's not how it works, folks. God is God. He's the only God. He's the only God. He's for your God. So God gives instructions. He, if we look back in Exodus, we go back to Leviticus, I mean, I'll be the first one to tell you, if you have insomnia, if you have a hard time sleeping at night, get out Leviticus. Ten minutes into it. If you, if you last ten minutes, you're doing better than most. It comes off as very boring stuff because it's just kind of a law and it's these commands, and they all have purpose. God doesn't do anything just by chance or just on a whim. It all has purpose. And yet we read law after law after law. Folks, God set forth those laws, and now he puts himself under the law. It's an amazing thing. On the eighth day, every Jewish boy was to be circumcised. And you see that in verse 21. On the eighth days, at the end of eight days, they go and he's circumcised. On the 40th day, the, the mom, along with the baby, would come, and there would be this purification, the ceremony of purification. And uh, the, the priest saying, okay, you can come back to worship. And they do that. And the third part that we see in verse 22 there is that they were to present themselves to the Lord. Almost like, kind of like a dedication. But it really goes a little bit beyond that. For a Jewish boy, the firstborn, originally God said, okay, that firstborn son is mine. And then he came up, you know, he, he, he told us about the, the tribe of Levi and that was going to be the, the priestly 
line and they would kind of run things in the church. Later on, we see that Jewish, if you had a firstborn son, think about this, everybody who has a, a son, your firstborn, you would actually take the child, if you were Jewish, and you would take him to the priest and it was called redeeming the son. You were buying back the son. Because again, originally, if you go back to Exodus and Leviticus, go to Leviticus 12 and some of those places, you'll see all this laid out. And those were, that firstborn son, that's God's son. And so you would redeem, you would buy back your son. And here we see Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus coming under the law, being obedient to the law, In fact, if you read verses 21 through 40, you're going to see the law mentioned five times. And why does God want us to know this? Why is this a big deal? Because, guys, this is a very big deal. Jesus came under the law, even though he's the giver of the law. He came under the law so that you and I could be free of the law. Isn't that amazing? He fulfills the law in his life, death, and burial so that you and I are now not under the law. Not just, oh, we don't have to do this. We don't. No, that we don't have the penalty of the law over us. Our freedom, our salvation is bought because Christ not only came and lived and died, but he put himself in this humility under the very law that he established. I mean, have you ever been there in that situation as a parent where your child calls your card on your hypocrisy of a law in the house? I mean, those are not fun days as parenting. You know, there is a family law. This is it. And then all of a sudden, you know, hey, Dad, <laughs> you know, you didn't do that. And they call your hand on it. And it's like, man. And you can either really get mad, go to your room, or you, can, you just can kind of, well, you know, you're right. Well, that's what Jesus does here. He comes under the law and he shows us humility. Why? Galatians 4, 4 through 5. This is what Paul said. Paul connects what Christ has done, being born in the flesh, dwelling among us just like you and I, fingers and toes just like you and I, but, but the importance of the spiritual of coming under this law so that he can fulfill the law. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Four and five, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born where? Under the law. Why? Verse five: to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I come, I'm the one that made the laws. I'm the one that made everything. I've made all of creation. And yet I will succumb to that and I will put myself under the law. Why? Because I love you. And the only way that I can adopt you as sons and daughters into my kingdom is if I fulfill the law in every way perfectly and then I can go on. Amen? Folks, that's why we rejoice. I mean, I promise you, humility is not the first attribute that I think of when I think of God. I think of, you know, all these long theological words. But do you see the humility in this Christmas story? Not just because there's a manger, not just because there's this, you know, uh, improvised delivery room, but because God puts in puts into place there Christ coming in the flesh so that we can be redeemed under this law. Paul, Paul actually went further. In Galatians 3.13, 
I don't think that's going to be up here, but, but listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law but becoming the curse for us. What does it mean that we were under the curse of the law? How many of you are perfect? Not many hands. And so the curse of the law is that unless we had perfection, unless we were really walking in total perfection, we do not have a relationship with the holy God. He can love us, but we don't have a relationship in our sinfulness with the holy God. We cannot commune with God because of our sin. We're under this curse law because none of us have ever walked it perfectly. And what Paul is saying there in Galatians 3, he said, okay, Christ came. God clothed himself in flesh. Ten fingers, ten toes. He walked among us. He dwelt us. And he dwelt in that perfection so that the curse of the law could all go on him instead of on us. Here's what he said to the Corinthians when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know that it was the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that in his poverty you might become rich. That's the Christmas story. I mean, I love that it has all these other, you know, things that we can kind of celebrate and we can get out our nativity set and we can, you know, put magi over here and we can put, you know, a cow and a donkey and we can have all these things. That really is. That's special and I don't make light of that. But the Christmas story is this humility of God to clothe himself in flesh, to dwell among us and to dwell among us under the law so that you and I can have deliverance of the law from the law. I said there'd be two applications. First one, the grandest form of spiritual pride that you could ever take before a holy God is to think that your sin is too great for him to forgive. Let me say that again. The the most supreme, the grandest form of spiritual pride is for you to think that your sin is too great for God to forgive. Everything that God did here was to show you, pursue you, to give you this, this sacrifice of Christ. He dwelt himself in flesh so that he could come, be under the law, deliver you from the law. And, and what arrogance there would ever be to any of us. I mean, I get it, folks. That's what we call Satan. The Bible calls him the deceiver, the liar, the accuser of the brethren, because he would love to whisper, if not shout out, man, you're way too dirty. Why, why do you even go to church? Why do you even go there? If they knew what you really were like, why would you even go and assemble yourself with those people? See, that's what Satan would whisper into our ear, that somehow we're not worthy. And folks, on on the human level, we're not worthy. The worthiness comes in what Christ did for us. And so the first application this morning is a spiritual application. We look at the story, the Christmas story. We look at this and we begin to see this humility of God and, and, and we can have the very opposite effect in our own lives of a spiritual pride to think even for a moment that one of our sins, that somehow we have offended and, and done something so wrong that God can't forgive that. Second one, and this is one that hits home. Where that is the, the greatest form of a spiritual pride, the greatest form of spiritual rebellion for the life of a believer. I'm talking to Christians now, those that are in Christ. I believe that one of the grandest forms of spiritual rebellion is that we do not walk in humility with one another. 
holy God can humble himself for, for my account? And yet I can hold Carly culpable because she hurt my feelings? Do you see any irony? Do you, do you see just how messed up that is? That we would not be able to take this humility that God has shown us, holy God, and here we are, we're just mere folks, and, and that we would not be able to have this mind of Christ. That's what Paul charges us with in Philippians 2. Remember Philippians 2.5? Let this mind, have this mind in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and he tells us about what that mind is. That even though he was equal with God, he did not consider that equality of something to be grasped, but that he humbled himself even to the point of death, but not just an ordinary death, a death on the cross. The central part of that is not just the example of Christ, but the connection that, that God puts in, that Paul writes in there, that God you know, inspires him to write in verse 5. Have this mind that's in Christ Jesus, have it in you. Have you ever held on to something that hurt you so badly that you just could not forgive? In fact, you even thought maybe it would be unjust if you forgave. Because they haven't apologized, they haven't done this, they haven't done... I mean, it it was so wrong what this other person did in your life that there was a part of you that says, okay, not only am I just in my lack of forgiveness, but it would be unjust if I actually forgave that person. And yet, Creator God, Holy God, clothes Himself in flesh, humbles himself, puts himself under the law so that you and I can be redeemed from the law. There is not a spiritual leg to stand on. There is not a biblical land leg to stand on to, to, to harbor a lack of humility one with another. I, I'm convinced that probably one of the leading traits of Christ-likeness, if we are a Christ follower, is going to be Humility. That you can measure a man's maturity, a woman's maturity, their walk with Christ, and their humility in the way that they not only just treat other people, but how, how they treat those that are immediately there in, in their family. Yeah, because it always amazes me how we can be more friendly sometimes outside of our immediate household than we can with the people that live, you know, that we just share uh, this, you know, square footage with. And there's no spiritual leg, there's no spiritual place to stand there. If holy God can humble himself, pursue us to redeem us and bring us back into right relationship as Christ followers, that's what God calls us into. Maybe this Christmas, maybe there is a family member, maybe there's just a, you know, there's a disjointedness that's going on. Maybe it's existed for a while. Maybe you can trace back months, years to a place where there was just this fraction that happened and you just have not been able to get over that. Or maybe you've done your part and you're willing to, to kind of make amends, but they just have not shown any signs. You know, I, I, I charge you by the biblical you know, authority this morning. You know, put into place, follow, be a Christ follower. I, I love the term Christian. But, I, but I'd much, I, if I just want to be called you know, a Christian or a Christ follower, I, I want to be called a Christ follower. To me, there's a, a, a demonstrative 
outlet that comes there, not just a name of identity with Christ. I love that, that you could call me Christian, but I want to be known as a Christ follower. I, I want to actually do something with this life that he's given me. It, is, it will not earn me salvation. It will not earn me my rightness with God. All of that was done by Jesus Christ. But out of the awe and out of the love and out of just the, the pure appreciation and the joy that he has redeemed me, I want to be a Christ follower. And I promise you, folks, that this whole humility thing, coming under the law to free somebody from the law, what would be the modern-day application of that in husbands, wives, uh, parents, and, and children? Well, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. We're the parents here, and you're going to do what I say. Now, folks, there's a rightness to that. I mean, the Bible is going to back up time after time. Most repeated of all the commandments, unless it's changed, honor your mother and father. Okay, so there, there's a commandment. God is emphasizing that Old Testament, New Testament. Okay, it is something we see throughout God's Word. But sometimes we stand just on the authority of position that we have on an emotional basis, not really on a principle basis. And so sometimes it's even humbling ourselves to our children. Can you imagine what Christ-likeness they can see? If we truly were wrong, I'm not just saying that we need to be, you know, this palsy-palsy with our kids just for the sake of, you know, getting along. No, that we truly, when, when we do wrong, guys, and, and there's times as parents that we do this, there's times as husbands and wives that we do it, and when we really blow it, that we would humble ourselves, not because we just want peace, but under the call of Jesus Christ, that we would humble ourselves before those that would be around us. What a call we have here this morning. This humility, it starts right there in our homes. This humility that God has placed himself in so that you and I can be redeemed, so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters. And now let us transfer that, that, that humility through us in everyday life that we truly would take on, not just this, well, not me, oh, shucks. That's not the humility he's talking about. I don't think that God, when God came and dwelt in Jesus Christ, that God was saying, oh, shucks, you know, I'm going to take on a body. I'm going to be 5 foot 11, weigh 180 pounds. That's not what he's saying there. The humility is what he did, placing himself under the law so that you and I could be redeemed from the law. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, I thank you that there is so much in your word, Father. Every time that we open it up, Father, and we peel just a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper, we see things that perhaps we're seeing for the first time. Father, thank you that there is riches and that there's treasure in your word. And Father, we, we see today that you have spoken with purpose. Father, you have given us this call to humility in our lives. And, and Father, we thank you that... Uh, that you have told us, instructed us, commanded us to have this mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus. Father, today, will you help us to be Christ followers? Father, will you truly help us to be like Christ and, and empty ourselves, our own motives, our own persuasions, our own wishes and all those things, Father, so that we might live truly in, in a humility that is Christ-born? And Father, how remiss we would be to, to end this morning, Father, without just praising you, of standing in awe, in this holy fear, just as the, the shepherds were in a holy fear, 
Father, that we would stand in fear this morning of where we would be even this day, Father, without your humility, without Christ coming under the law to redeem us from the law. Father, we love you and we thank you this morning. Let our praises ring out from our, from our very souls this morning. Father, may we sing in celebration of the redemption that we have. And Father, as we, as we would sing even this morning, Father, and we think back to a little manger and we think of a little baby and we think of a, a, an instantly made delivery room out in some cave dwelling. Father, help us not to get so lost in the emotion of that that we do not see the, the, the significance of that and how it has bought our redemption through the wonderful gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we just have a time of just coming before the Lord. The altar is open for you to come and pray. Take us both into our homes, into this community, Father, as Christ followers, Father, that you would surely show us uh, uh, how to humble ourselves in situations, Father, where we might think that we have a right or that we have something of principle to stand on. Father, will you just show us your heart? Father, this Christmas, will you show us uh, truly how to, to, to lead in humility, 
And Father, I thank you. And I pray that if anybody here this morning, Father, is struggling with a, a sin that they feel is just too great to be forgiven, Father, that they would come back to your biblical truth, that they would put their eyes and their focus on the redeeming work of Christ. And Father, that they would forget the lie that there is a sin greater than your salvation. We love you and we thank you, Father. We praise you as we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.